0: Om akhandam satjidanandam avang manasagocharam atmanam akhila dharam ashraye bhishta I take refuge in the atman, the indivisible existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, beyond the reach of thoughts and words, and the substratum of all for the attainment of my cherished desire. Now, in this book, Vedanta Sara, we are considering this chapter. The theme is, who am I? And the way the chapter is organized is around the different philosophical views in ancient India. So each philosopher comes in turn and gives their theory of the Atman, of the self. What do they think about their self? And the way it is done is that um, we have to ask three questions. What is the argument for their theory? What reason do they give? In Sanskrit, yukti. Then the second is experience. What anubhuti do they give? How do we know from our daily experience? If you say that I am the mind, self is the mind. So what, what is it in our daily experience that shows us that we are the mind? So they have to provide an anubhuti. And then third is, Shruti. They provide, I don't say they have to, but they do provide, that's the style of argumentation. They do provide a supporting quotation from the uh, scriptures, in this case, the Vedas, specifically the Upanishads. So this is what we have been doing. We started off, if you remember, with a person who was not a philosopher, just uh, an ordinary person, uh, you know, who said that my children are myself. Uh, And then we went on to the first philosopher who came along was a very gross materialist who said the body is the self. And then came another materialist, another Charvaka, who said uh, that no, uh, the senses are the self. Uh, Then comes another uh, philosopher who says, the uh, life itself is the self, uh, prana. Another one comes along and says, no, it's the mind which is the self, thoughts, feelings emotions um, you know memories this is the self uh, these are pretty sophisticated theories actually uh, and then comes the first uh, buddhist philosopher multiple schools of buddhism uh, the first buddhist philosopher which we which we come across is the yoga Achara vijnanavada the school of the mind only philosopher who says the ultimate reality there's no external reality the only reality is mind uh, specifically he says vijnana atma this, uh, the, the, the flashes of intellect, there is only a series of flashes of Vijnana or, or cognitions, a series of cognitions. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, perceptions, and that stream, call it a stream of cognitions, call it a stream of consciousness, call it a stream of flashes of, uh, of Buddhi or Vijnana. Uh, this is the only reality, and this is where we perceive the external world, and we misconceive of ourselves as a self. But it's only a stream of uh, flashes of, of cognitions. Uh, that's where we were at last time. Last time, and we took a sort of stop to explore this school of uh, philosophy, which is a major school of Buddhist philosophy. It's in fact one of the two planks of Tibetan Buddhism. Modern Tibetan Buddhism, which you find, um, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and all the lamas who teach it um, across the world nowadays, the two fundamental philosophies. There's a twin philosophy, which is the, uh, the ground or the foundation of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, both are from ancient India. One is the, this one, which we read last time, the Yogachara Vijnavada, the mind-only school. The other one is the Madhyamaka Shunyavada, the, the uh, emptiness, what my teacher at Harvard used to call the emptiness people, the, the Madhyamaka Shunyavada. So these two, modern Tibetan Buddhism is basically a synthesis of these two schools. Um, okay, now we shall go ahead. Now we come across some other philosophers. They are all coming forth with their um, they criticising the theories which preceded them and putting forth their own theories of self of Atma, what is the self? Text number one hundred twenty nine Prabha <laughs> kartartara atma anandamayaha. Two schools of philosophers are mentioned here. The Prabhakaram Iwamsaka school and the Tarkikas. They say that ignorance, Agyana, is the self. Why? Because of Shruti passages such as, different from and more internal than this is the self, which consists of bliss. And owing also to the fact that during sound sleep, deep sleep, the intellect, etc. merge in ignorance. And further, because of such experiences as, I am ignorant, I am devoid of knowledge, etc. So they say that the ignorance itself is the self. This is a very peculiar way of looking at it, but when you look, attend closely to what they are saying, it makes sense. Who are, first of all, who are we talking about here? Two, actually three schools of philosophy are mentioned here. One is the, it says Tarkikau. Um, the Tarkikas, the Tarkikas are, uh, two schools are included here. The Nyaya and the Vaisheshika. The Nyaya school and the Vaisheshika. And they are usually, they, sometimes they are called Tarkika. Literally it means those who argue, those who debate, the logicians, the school of the logicians Why are two schools classified together? Because their um, metaphysical and epistemological doctrines, they share a lot. Most of it is shared in common. What the Nyaya school says about the world and what the Vaisheshikas say uh, is more or less the same about the self, about the world, about epistemology and so on. They share a lot in common, minor differences. Um, Then why are there two schools? Well, the difference in emphasis, the Vaisheshika school, whose sutras were written by Kannada, um, they are more interested in the world, in the universe. So they classify the universe into seven categories, Saptapadata, seven categories. Whereas the Nyaya school, Nyaya literally means logic, the Nyaya school, whose sutras were composed by Gautama, they are more interested in Pramana. Pramana means how do we know? For philosophy, the moment you try to do philosophy, you will immediately come across this question, how do you know anything? You're talking about self is the body, or the world is real, or the world is false, Brahman is real. Always the question will be, how do you know? So then we come to the study of knowledge itself. How do we know anything? It's called epistemology. So epistemology, you have to get your epistemology uh, in order before you start your metaphysics. Metaphysics, the things which deal with literally after physics, but it, it uh, deals with the reality of the world. A more technically correct name for metaphysics is ontology. Ontos means reality. So ontology means the study of reality. Um, and before you study reality, what do you mean by reality? Universe, body, self, all this is reality. So what, what is your theory of reality? Before you decide what is your theory of reality, you must first decide how do you know anything at all? So before ontology, you have to get your epistemology right. So the Nyaya school specializes in epistemology. How do we know anything? Sources of knowledge, the um, logic, reasoning. So the Nyaya school divides the universe into 16 categories. Basically the seven categories of the Vaisheshika school plus several categories which deal with knowledge itself. And they are the ones who designed this whole you know, system of logic used by all schools of Indian philosophy, the system of debate and reasoning, a wonderful contribution, tremendous contribution of the Nyaya school. So they were sort of the major school of philosophy. In fact, today also, even now, if you study Vedanta traditionally, first you have to study um, Nyaya, and you have to study um, Sanskrit grammar, Vyakarana, and you have to study Mimamsa, uh, Padavakya Pramanadhi. Padavakya Pramanadhi means you must know Padashastra. That means the science of words, which is uh, grammar. Then you must know the uh, science of uh, Vakya, sentences, how to interpret texts. Because you're going to talk about Upanishads. These are parts of the Vedas. How do you interpret text? How do you get meaning out of a text? That is, in a modern name for that is hermeneutics. And uh, the ancient name was Mimamsa. So you must learn mimamsa. You must learn grammar, vyakarana, you must learn mimamsa. And uh, then you must, that's not enough. You must learn how to reason. So Pramarna Shastra, which includes epistemology and logic, uh, that is nyaya. So Pada Vakya Pramana literally means the science of words, science of sentences, and the science of knowledge, uh, which translates into vyakarana, grammar, uh, mimamsa, hermeneutics and uh, Nyaya, the Nyaya system of philosophy. So this is what you have to learn before you start Vedanta, before you pick up the (laughs) book of Vedanta. Uh, It's like a 20 or 40 year course or something like like that. Now, um, so the Nyaya Vaisheshika school is included here. And then the Mimamsa school, the ones who are experts in interpreting the Vedas. The Mimamsa school has two parts. Yeah, the Purva Mimamsa and the Uttara Mimamsa. The early Mimamsa, or the later Mimamsa are, um, yeah, I can put it that way. Mimamsa literally means interpretation. Um, there's a technical definition of that in Sanskrit. Pujita Vichara. Reverential inquiry. Reverential inquiry into what? Reverential inquiry into texts. Which texts? Vedas. Now the Vedas are broadly, very broadly speaking, they can be classified into Karmakanda and Gyanakanda. The portion dealing with rituals and the portion dealing with knowledge. And Vedanta is the portion dealing with knowledge. The portion dealing with knowledge is found in the texts called the Upanishads. That's why we remember we defined Vedanta as Vedanta Namo Upanishad Pramanam when we started this book. What is Vedanta? The source of knowledge called Upanishads is Vedanta. So Vedanta is also a school of Mimamsa. Mimamsa means textual interpretation. But the texts that we are supposed to deal with are the Upanishads. But the bulk of the Vedas is not the Upanishads. bulk of the Vedas are concerned with various kinds of rituals, um, pre-Upanishadic rituals. And uh, the school which specialized in that is called Purva Mimamsa, the earlier Mimamsa. And in the Mimamsa, it's, it's a vast school of philosophy, and especially school, they are specifically interested in textual interpretation. Uh, in fact, if you attended uh, Professor Clooney's talk last Saturday, uh, one, one of the texts he talked about was, the, was a Purva Mimamsa text, a Purva Mimamsa text, Jai Nyayamala, which he's talking about is a Purva Mimamsa text. Um, So, Purva Mimamsa is also a vast school of philosophy. And uh, they had many great philosophers. We will come across two of them. One is called Prabhakara. So, now you have two schools which you are talking about, two or three schools. One is Prabhakara. Prabhakara means the school of Prabhakara. What is the school of Prabhakara? It is a school, it's a sub-school of Mimamsa, Purva Mimamsa, whose master was Prabhakara, who lived about 1,200, 1300, 1,300 years ago. And who else? Tarkika, the Nyaya Vaisheshika school. What do they say? They say, um, Atma, ignorance or the blankness which you experience in deep sleep, that's the real nature, nature of the self. The blankness which you experience in deep sleep, that is the real nature of the self. Why do you say that? Where, where does, for, for, give, give us a quotation from the scriptures, from the Upanishads, give us um, an argument, give us some experience to prove your point. Quotation from the scripture. Their favorite, of course, Taittiriya Upanishad, which is the go-to for all of these people. So they will, because there is the pancha kosha, the step-by-step uh, inquiring to the self. You pick up just whatever suits you. So for them, the Anandamaya kosha suits them. So they say, Anyo Atma Anandamaya, deeper than this, Inward to this, deeper or subtler than this, inward to this, this means what? The intellect, which the, which the mind-only school of Buddhists had caught on as the self. They say no, not that. Because there is there is a time when the mind also stops functioning. You have no cognitions. You're talking about the series of cognitions, there are no, no cognitions. The Upanishad says, deeper than this, subtler than this, more inward than the intellect, more inward than the Vijnanamaya Kosha, is the Anandamaya Kosha. The sheath of bliss, which we experience in itself. It is always there, but we experience by itself in deep sleep. So Shukti. So Annyavantara Atma, Anandamaya. The Anandamaya is the Atma, the sheath of bliss, that is the real nature of the self. It's a very deep point. In some schools of philosophy, they stop here. Ittyadi shrutehe. And such quotations from the shrutis or the, the, the scriptures. Then um, give us the reason. Why do you say, what a strange thing to say that the real nature of the self is a blankness. Um, give us some reason. The reason is this. The reason is pretty simple. When you fall asleep, everything, every experience of self is erased. You have no experience of the body. You have no experience of your children, of your body, of your... Uh, You know, about the children, I give an example to, when I want to talk about detachment, people will say that, oh, it's okay, detachment is for monks, but we are householders, we are attached. And the one example I give is, it's a stunning example, it's not mine, I I got it from a monk. He says that, think of the, that we are actually detached. Our nature is detachment, asanga. Think of the greatest possible attachment in this world. A young mother with her baby. Well, it's a tremendous att- attachment, and that's necessary. Otherwise, who would take care of the baby? So young mother with the baby, very attached to the baby. Even the baby with, to which she is so much attached, when she finally falls asleep at night, she happily goes into deep sleep, forgetting the world, forgetting her own body, forgetting the most precious thing which she's always worried about, the baby. She happily forgets about it and goes into deep sleep. Now, this is not the way we normally think about our a mother going into deep sleep. But this is an interesting point to note, that you have no complaints, you have no anxieties. What's going to happen to the baby? Oh, I, 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 I cannot fall asleep. I'm too anxious about the baby. No, very happily you fall asleep. So when you fall asleep and it is erased, the world is erased from you, whatever you thought was the self, the baby is erased from your experience, your own body is erased from your experience, your senses, all those other schools. The senses are not functioning. Mind is not functioning. The intellect is not functioning. Uh, All sense of individuality is lost. Even the sense of I am sleeping, that's also lost. There's no thought, no memory, no experience, no external experience. No internal experience also. Dreams, nothing. Neither um, sense experience nor dreams. Subject, object are are melded together, together into one uniform blankness. Deep sleep. And yet, you might say, okay, that happens. So, yet, when we get up, what do do we say? I slept happily. Emphasis is on, I slept happily. Then what was it that slept happily? You are claiming the self. It's not that somebody else slept happily. Or deep sleep happened to somebody else. It happened to me. I claim it. Therefore, that is the ultimate nature of the self. The self in itself has no consciousness. Even consciousness goes away by itself. So uh, that is the reasoning. In fact, why the Nyaya Vaisheshika school has been included here is, in the Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophy, in the state of liberation, moksha, final liberation, they use a very ancient word, apavarka. in the state of varka, when the self atma reaches uh, liberation there is no consciousness because for them in the nyaya vaisheshika um, philosophy consciousness emerges when the self comes in contact with a mind very interesting and also a pretty subtle point and also a pretty close phenomenological description of what happens you see when do we really feel i mean we forget all your vedanta about Deep sleep, witnessing deep sleep, the Mandukya Upanishad and all of that. Actually, practically, when do we come to a sense of ourself? Only when we wake up. When the first thought comes, when the first perception comes, when the first, you know, sensation comes. I am, I am awake. Or the first dream starts again. Then only. When the mind starts functioning, then you feel consciousness. So they say, that consciousness emerges only when the self and the mind the mind comes in contact with the atma but without the mind no no consciousness and in in moksha in freedom the universe body mind they are not in contact with the self for them they are realists so there is a real universe universe will continue but the self is no no longer has a body no longer has a mind so the self just exists now you might say that's a very a strange kind of freedom, moksha. Is it something that you would want to aim for? For that, you have to look back and say that uh, the Nyaya Vaisheshika said, but Look, this is what we promised. Let's go back to the beginning. Why are we at all following the school of Nyaya Vaisheshika? They say the goal is freedom from pain, yeah. goal is freedom from suffering. What about bliss? No, that's all those things are Vedanta, not Nyaya. Nyaya is freedom from pain. We will give you complete freedom from suffering. And complete freedom from suffering requires freedom from the mind. But the moment you are free of the mind, you will be free of consciousness also. And you are, you exist, but no consciousness, no mind, no body. What about the world? It goes on by itself, there are other people around. But you are free. Now We may sort of... Hesitate, that's a weird kind of freedom. Um, and in fact, one great Vaishnava teacher, great Vaishnava master in later centuries, Nyaya is very ancient. In later centuries, one great Vaishnava master said, uh, better than this, much much better than this moksha of the freedom of Vaisheshika and Nyaya is if I were to be born as a fox in Vrindavana, you know, where Krishna and Radha were there even if i were to be born as an animal varam shrigalatvam vrindavane far superior than the then the mukti of the vaisheshikas is to be born as a as a fox as an animal in vrindavana anyhow so uh, it is that is their theory and therefore they say the real nature of the self atman by itself no consciousness and then um, what about the experience. Can you give us some experience? Where do we experience this? So we experience it all the time. I am no knowledge, deep sleep. Or uh, I do not know the, the absence of knowledge, particular knowledges which we have in, in our day-to-day life. And also the complete absence of any kind of knowledge in deep sleep. These are signs that uh, we exist without knowledge. That means without mind, without consciousness. So it's a kind of subtle point they are making. Anyhow, we may not like it, but it's a plausible point they have made. Then the other school, there is a, another school of Purvami Mamsa, um, the Bhatta school. This is the school of Purvami Mamsa, which is, whose master was Kumarila Bhatta, one of the greatest philosophers that India has produced, just uh, preceding Shankara Acharya. Kumarila Bhatta lived about 1400 years ago and he was a master of the Purvami Mamsa school. He has a different view about the self. He is also Purvami Mamsa but a different view of the self. Text number 130. Bhattastu prajnana ghana anandamaya ityadi shutehe susupto prakasha prakasha sadbhava mamahamna janami So, this is a subtle difference. It says, the Bhaktas, on the contrary, say that the consciousness associated with the ignorance is the self on account of such Shruti passages as during dreamless self, the Atman is undifferentiated consciousness and full of bliss. This is from the Mandukya Upanishad. Owing also to the fact that both consciousness and unconsciousness are present in the state of dreamless sleep. And from such experiences as I do not know myself, etc. So, what has been said here? It says that no, unconsciousness is not the self. The real nature of the self is consciousness illumining ignorance. Deep sleep is not just ignorance, it is consciousness illumining ignorance. It's like light shining in a void. You see, a very good example is deep space in deep space which looks black, completely black and dark. But it is full of sunlight streaming through the space between earth and the sun. It's full of sunlight streaming towards the earth. So much light is there, it looks completely dark. How do you know there's light? Say for example, when a comet goes, and you see the tail blazing forth, what's happening? Does the comet have its own lighting system? No, it's the sunlight which is reflected. There's nothing to reflect the sunlight and therefore, it looks dark. Similarly, in deep, in deep sleep, there's nothing to be aware of except the ignorance itself. So that's why it seems no consciousness. But there is consciousness. There is consciousness in deep sleep. That's the Vedantic position. So consciousness with not knowing anything, consciousness associated with ignorance, consciousness associated with the Anandamaya Kosha, the state of deep sleep, That is the actual nature of of the self. So both are saying, this one and the earlier one, both are saying what we find in deep sleep is the actual nature of the self. But there the two accounts differ. For the Prabhakar and the Tarkika there is no consciousness in deep sleep. And for Kumārila Bhatta there is only consciousness in deep sleep. Nothing for consciousness to be aware of. So he says, Bhattastu Prajnana Ghanayavananda This quotation is from This quotation is from Mandukya Upanishad. Sixth mantra, uh, seventh mantra of the mantra. No, uh, fifth mantra of the Mandukya Upanishad. Where Sushupti is described. You have done all this. Then can you give us some uh, reasoning? Why are you saying this consciousness plus ignorance? That is the nature of the self. He says in deep sleep, we have prakasha, aprakasha, sadbhavat, The coexistence of light, consciousness and darkness. Because there is nothing to be conscious of. There's only consciousness with nothing to be conscious of. I mentioned this earlier. Many years ago, I had this interesting, I was witness to an interesting encounter between modern neuroscience and uh, uh, Sankhya philosophy. So Professor Larson, who was an American philosopher who passed away just a few years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, he was a very noted philosopher of Sankhya especially. He has a book called Classical Sankhya. He had come to Calcutta, to the Institute of Culture, to attend a um, conference on consciousness, the science and philosophy of consciousness. So there were Indian philosophers and there were uh, neuroscientists and they could find no common ground. And finally, things came to a head when uh, Professor Larson asked a neuroscientist who had come from England, he said, doctor, according to neuroscience, is there consciousness in deep sleep? And the doctor said, no, according to neuroscience, we define deep sleep as no consciousness. There is no consciousness in deep sleep. And Professor Larson said in Indian philosophy, Samkhya and Vedanta and Purva Mimamsa, there is only consciousness in deep sleep. This is the Gulf. Brain science says there's no consciousness in deep sleep, though it has changed now. Now latest discoveries are there can be some kind of basal consciousness, proto-consciousness in deep sleep. They're using, they're, they're saying these things. Anyhow, um, so there is no consciousness in deep sleep and there is consciousness, there is only consciousness in deep sleep. This is the gulf which separates the two positions. Then one more thing. Can you give us some experience? He says, um, So, experience is like, I do not know myself. Um, So, The footnote says, even in the waking state, a man says, I do not know myself, though he is aware of his own existence. Therefore, the self is, according to this school, consciousness associated with ignorance, whatever that means. So this is the uh, view of Kumarila Bhatta. Now, I want to use this occasion to tell you a little bit, not about these schools, but some nice stories associated with these philosophers. Uh, Prabhakara and uh, Kumarila Bhatta. Kumarila Kumari Labhatta is actually part of our story. We Last time we saw the great Buddhist philosopher Vasubandhu, who is one of the major philosophers of three different schools of Buddhism, and especially the mind-only school. And his teachings on mind-only were actually refuted 200 years after him by Kumari Labhatta, the great um, uh, Purvamimamsa philosopher. Uh, who in one of his great books, he wrote two great books, Tantra Vartika and Shloka Vartika, massive books. They're mostly about Purva Mimamsa, the interpretation of the uh, Vedas, but many metaphysical and uh, epistemological uh, points are mentioned there. One of the sections is called Alambana Parikshan, where he examines the claims of the mind-only Buddhist philosophers and shows that that cannot be true that there's only the mind, there's no external world. he he just uh, he does an extraordinary, I, I mean the word I used is forensic I had to do an assignment on that uh, what happened was one of the options we had uh, was to study Vasubandhu the, the Buddhist philosopher and um, so could you refute, what about refutation of the Buddhist school mind only school and I knew that Kumari Bhatta, the Vedic the Purva school had refuted. He had uh, refuted the mind-only school. And I found a book called uh, Sanskrit Debate. Very curious little book. James Allen Curry, I think. Um, this gentleman is a mysterious. I mean, he, he turned out to be an ex-student and alumnus of Harvard philosophy department. And he had never written anything else. But he wrote this one book. He studied Vasubandhu, the mind-only Buddhist philosopher, and he studied Kumarila Bhatta. And he wrote a book about Kumarila Bhatta's refutation of the mind-only school. So, Kumarila Bhatta has an essay called, it's a part of his larger work. It's called Alambana Pariksha. Um, So, the word I used was like a forensic, you know, um, he like, takes apart Vasubandhu's uh, arguments. Extraordinary intellect. I mean, Vasubandhu is simply smashed by Kumarila Bhatta. Um, so, what is the story about Kumarila Bhatta? We often credit Shankaracharya with having defeated Buddhist philosophers, you know, and then re-establishing uh, Vedic philosophy. But before him, the groundwork was already done. The bulk of the work had been done by Kumarila Bhatta. The story goes. So this great Vedic philosopher, Kumarila Bhatta, this is about 1400 years ago, in Banaras, he, one day, while walking down near the Ganga, he hears a lady crying. And he goes to this lady and he, he finds this lady who looks like a goddess and she's weeping bitterly. So he asks, my lady, why, who are you and why are you crying? And she replies, oh, I am the Vedas and I'm crying because... The buddhists they insist on you know insulting me and abusing me and refuting me and that's why i'm crying who is there to defend me kumar labhatta says don't worry as long as i am there you have no worries i shall you know i shall get down to it i'll immediately defend you so um, uh, in sanskrit do not cry uh, Bhatta still work, walks the earth, you know, um, I'm still on the earth. <laughs> as long as I walk the earth, Kumarila Bhatta walk, walks the earth, you don't, you don't have to cry. So he immediately challenged the greatest Buddhist teachers of his time to a debate. In those days, they used to like, you know, like the gladiatorial combats. And there would be these uh, intellectual debates between different schools of philosophy. And there would be umpires and they would draw large crowds. And, then, um, and this was serious. Because if you were defeated in one of these debates, you would have to convert to that other person's school of thought. So it's not just talking, it's serious. Imagine if a uh, Democrats lose a debate and then you have to become a Republican or a Republican loses a debate, you have to become a Democrat. That, that's, that's what is at stake. Um, so they were elaborate affairs. Kumar Labhatta challenged the greatest Buddhist uh, masters at that time. And there was a great debate which Kumārila Bhatta promptly lost. So he was shocked uh, that he had lost the debate and the Buddhists had outmaneuvered him. So he decided he had to learn Buddhist uh, logic. So he disguised himself as a Buddhist Buddhist, novice and he joins the school of the Buddhist master. And then he starts learning Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist logic so the story goes one day he's sitting with all the other uh, students he's in disguise as a buddhist novice and the master uh, is teaching and then they get down to uh, you know abusing the vedas his beloved vedas and he can't take it anymore so there are tears in his eyes you know tears roll down his uh, cheeks and the, the other buddhist students near him they notice it and they say uh, what's this tell us truly who are you so he has to tell the truth he said, well, I am Kumari bhatta and uh, I, I disguised myself as a Buddhist to learn your techniques. But now I have learned your techniques. So I'm going to go now, go now and uh, come back and challenge you. Uh, the Buddhist said, not so fast. And they grabbed him and they took him before the, their master. And the master said, you must be punished for this deceit. Uh, and um, because... You know this buddhism so it's non-violent you, we won't kill you or you know hurt you We just take you take him to the highest tower and toss him the gravity will do the rest you can toss him off the tower so they drag him up to the highest tower and then they they're about to toss him uh, from the tower push him off the tower and, and the Kumārī bhatta says if the vedas are true then nothing will happen to me and he's kicked off the tower and he falls down it and, and it's amazing he lives but he loses one eye in, in that fall. He, won, he lost one eye and he ran away. And then um, you know he went back to his school and he challenged the Buddhists. And in a great debate, he managed to defeat the Buddhists. Um, and then, so this is the story we have learned. The Buddhists have quite a different version in which they, they thoroughly defeat Kumar Lābhatta. But anyway, so somebody asked him, Why did you, if if you you claim that nothing will happen to you if you're tossed off the uh, tower, but you lost one eye, why did you lose one eye? And he said, it's because of the sin of having said, if the Vedas are true. Because I used the if, I lost one eye. I should have said the Vedas are true and therefore nothing is going to happen to me. But I said, if the Vedas are true, then nothing is going to happen to me. So I lost one eye. Anyhow, he defeats the... Buddhists in Debate and re-establishes the primacy of Vedic Hinduism. Um, But quite apart from these stories, it's true that his works contain very um, searching and deep critiques of uh, Buddhist philosophy, um, including the one which, um, the the book, Sanskrit Debate. And the book is written in very thrilling language. It's like a thriller. (laughs) Uh, So if you, it's a small book. He gives the original text of Basubandhu's book, he gives the original text of um, Kumarila's essay, and then he explains the arguments. They are very subtle arguments, so he explains the arguments. So That formed the basis of my assignment. That's why I know this quite uh, thoroughly, backwards and forwards. Now what happened was, the story continues, Shankaracharya, years later, um, Shankaracharya comes and meets Kumarila Bhatta. The story is, after a long and illustrious career in propagating the Vedas Kumar and writing books and all of that, Kumar Labhatta decided that um, he had to perform repentance. Uh, why? Because he had deceived his Buddhist master. After all, the Buddhist master was his master and he had not told the truth. He had hidden his uh, own um, um, you know, background and to become a student. So the only repentance for this the, the, uh, is to, the Chitta, that is the term, is to sit on a slow fire. A slow fire is when you sit on that and it slowly burns you from uh, top upwards. It's called tushanala It burns slowly so it, it is uh, much more painful. You don't die immediately. You burn to a most horrible death. And so he sits there in repentance for uh, having lied to uh, his Buddhist master. But what happens at this time, the young scholar and saint Shankaracharya comes. Who has written a new commentary on the Brahma Sutras, and he wants to prove that the Upanishads are not part of the ritualistic portion of the Vedas; they constitute an independent um, school of philosophy, Vedanta. That's us. So it's very important. This is uh, we have a lot in stake here. So he comes to argue with, he, to challenge, um, Kumarilabhatta. You know, in in my essay at the end, I had written that. So we can see step by step how Kumarila Bhatta forensically deconstructs every argument that um, Vasubandhu had given. So Kumarila Bhatta won the battle, but he didn't win the war. Because um, after him comes Shankaracharya from his own Vedic Hinduism with arguments very similar to the mind only school of, um, uh, of Buddhism and defeats Kumarila's own school of uh, Purvami mimamsa, So that might be the unkindest cut of all, I said, that you find those people you thought you had defeated forever and tossed out of India, you find they have entered into your own school and they have come forth in the form of Shankaracharya. Anyway, so Shankaracharya comes up to him and says, here is my book. There is a movie about Shankaracharya, a Sanskrit movie. The whole dialogue is in Sanskrit. So it's very nice to see. Shankaracharya with his disciples comes to meet Kumarila Bhatta who is sitting on this slow fire. It's a big funeral pyre on which Kumarila Bhatta is sitting. And uh, the young boy Shankara comes with his book. Would you review my book, a book review? And Kumarila Bhatta is shown quite comically, you know, because one eye is gone. So one eye is like going round and round in circles. It's damaged. And he can see only in one eye. And sitting on that fire, he goes to the Brahma Sutra commentary of Shankaracharya. It's it's a very, very difficult and dry and uh, abstruse text. So I can't imagine sitting on a slow fire and reading uh, the Brahma Sutra commentaries. But Kumar Bhatta enjoys it. He says, wow, great, it's wonderful, fantastic. He has all these great comments about reading it. And he says, I have no time um, to respond to your arguments because my bottom is more or less burnt and <laughs> the fire is proceeding upwards. And uh, so I recommend that you go. And meet my disciple, Mandana Mishra, who lives in the city of Mahishmati. He a great scholar of Purva Mimamsa, and if you can defeat him, it's as good as defeating me. Right now, I don't have time to debate with you because I'm sort of half burnt up now. And so uh, Shankara bows down to him and walks off to meet Mandana Mishra. And that's quite another story. And uh, poor Kumarila is reduced to ashes. Now that's one story. The um, other related story is of um, Prabhakara, the, the one which we just read, the earlier text, Prabhakara, the second sc- school of um, Mimamsa. So that's also a very uh, cute story. Kumar Labhatta had brilliant students. One of them is Mandana Mishra, whom uh, he, went off Shankar- he sent Shankaracharya off to debate with. And that's a very fascinating story in itself. But Prabhakara was his most brilliant student. And Pravakara uh, is a student of Kumarila Bhatta. Pravakara started his own school. So, all the stories about Pravakara are, are how he disputes whatever Kumarila teaches him. <laughs> so, Pravakara is well known for coming up with his own interpretations, own theories, and disputing his teacher. And so, uh, the story is how Pravakara's school, sub school, is known as Gurumata, the, the opinion, the, the version of the teacher. Now, he's a student. Kumarila is the teacher. Kumarila is the guru and Prabhakar is the student. But Prabhakar's school came to be known as Guru Matam, the, the the view of the teacher. Why? So, uh, two incidents which will explain why. One day, Kumarila was teaching. And um, all the students are there. And Prabhakar is also there. And there was, remember, it is mostly a matter of interpreting texts. What is the meaning of texts? So, this will just make sense to those who have a, some knowledge of Sanskrit. It's, a, it's also funny. I mean, it's just like an anecdote. So, imagine Kumarila writes down that, um, a sentence of which he, even he cannot make any sense of. It's, the sentence is Atratuna Uktam, Uktam, It has not been said here, it has not been said there, hence, it has been said twice meaning of that sentence is, it's not been said here, it's not been said there. Uktam, tatra uktam, um, ataha and hence it's been said twice. And kumarila couldn't make sense of it. How is it something that something has not been said here, and something has not been said there, here, there, wherever. And hence it has been said twice. And none of the students could make head or tail of this um, sentence. So Kumārila leaves the room for some something and when he comes back, he finds that the sentence has been split in this way. Um, I'll tell you, and then it will make sense. Atra tuna uktam. Tuna has been clubbed together into one word. Tatra apina uktam. Apina has been clubbed into one word. Atah Now, if you divide the sentence in this way, the meaning will be, here it has been said with but... And there it has been said with also hence it has been said twice so the word sanskrit word two means but and the sanskrit word api means also now na means no not if you if you arrange the words in a particular way it means uh, but it is not said here and also it is not said there and therefore it has been said twice but if you divide it in another way the sentence reads it has been said with a but, starting with a but here. It has been said, again, we're starting with also there. And hence it has been said twice. So um, Kumarila was so happy with this. And he said, from today onwards, Prabhakar, who, who wrote this? Who did this? And everybody must have looked turned around to look at Prabhakar. And Prabhakar said, I did it. So from now on, you are the teacher. Whatever you say is, will, be the, will be seen as the view of the teacher. And hence, pravakara's view. And sometimes later, in later Sanskrit texts, you will see Guru Matam, the view of the teacher, is such and such. You must read it as the view of Prabhakara. So there is a commentary on the Gita, Shridhar Swami's commentary, which you used to study. Suddenly in between, he said, the view of the teacher is this. What teacher? It means pravakara, who lived 700 years before this commentary was written. <laughs> So it became quite a well-known story in the Sanskrit tradition. Another story about it is this. When Kumarila Labhatta finally died, um, so one of the things they do in the Purvami Mamsa is to talk about rituals. One of the important rituals is to be performed after death. How do you cremate a body? Uh, What are the rituals to be followed? Um, So um, once Kumarila Labhatta was very sick towards the end of his life, and he apparently went into a coma, coma or something. So when he was teaching these rituals, before he went to the coma, he was teaching these rituals. And as usual, Prabhakar opposed him. Um, Prabhakar um, um, said, I will not accept. This is not the way to do the rituals. This, this is the way you should do the rituals after death. This is, it was a funeral rituals. And they had a sharp disagreement. Kumarila Bhatta said, no, this is how the funeral uh, rituals have to be performed. And Prabhakar said, no, this is not how it should be performed. And finally, they had a sharp exchange of words. And Prabhakar uh, said, uh, I will never accept it as long as you live. Um, People were shocked at this harsh use of language to his own teacher. Anyway, it so happened sometime after this, Kumarila was ill and he apparently went into a coma or something and people thought he was dead. So immediately there was a discussion. Uh, so our teacher has died and how should we perform the funeral rituals? And they looked at Prabhakar, who was the leading student. So And they all the students gathered around him and said, I guess we have to do it your way because um, we can't do it his way. You will not accept. And what you say now, it, it goes because you are the teacher now. And Prabhakar, amazingly enough, he said, no, we will do it the way Kumarila said. Not the way I said it. We'll do it according to his his interpretation. At this moment, Kumarila sits up and says, Aha! So you finally accept that I was right. And Prabhakar said, No, I said I will not accept it as long as you are alive. You are dead. That's why I accepted it. (laughs) So that's the story. Why did I tell all this? Yeah. So these are the stories about Prabhakar and Kumarila Bhattar. And... Not much of this is historically tenable, but these are things which are handed down by oral tradition from teacher to student. Okay. I will reserve the next one, let me just read the next part of it. The next school. um, But I'll discuss it later because next school is one of my favorite schools, the emptiness people are coming. That's the last one before. And is the most sophisticated one, closest to Advaita Vedanta. That's the last one before Advaita Vedanta comes in. Text number 131. Another school of Buddhists. This is the emptiness school. One of the school of Buddhists says that the self is identical with the wide emptiness. On account of such shruti passages as in the beginning there was non-existence. Owing also to the fact that there is an absence of everything during dreamless sleep and further because of the experience regarding his non-existence of a man who just has awakened. As when he says to himself during the dreamless sleep, I was non-existent. So who is this this is the school of the madhyamaka shunyavada this is the school of buddhists called the madhyamaka shunyavada emptiness school what do they say self is emptiness shunyam the void is the self that's the real nature of the self quotation give us a please please give us a quotation they wouldn't but anyway because that's the style in which we are doing things so the, there's a quotation provided from the vaidamagra Maggraasi before the universe was created, there was nothing before the universe was created. There was nothing you might ask, just in context here, why would the Upanishad say something like that? Wouldn't the Upanishad say, Before the universe was created, there was Brahman? Yes, that's what the Upanishad says. The Upanishad says, Some say, you know, like before the universe was created, there was nothing, but how could something come out of uh, nothing, and therefore there was something before the creation of the universe? But that first sentence, Before the creation of the universe, there was nothing, that's what is quoted here. Before the creation of the universe, there was nothing. So all of this is empty. It has come out of nothingness. What has come out of nothingness must be nothingness. Notice here the difference between the Christian doctrine of uh, creation from nothing and this. In the Indian philosophy is whatever is in the cause must be in the effect. If the cause is an existent cause, the effect also must be existent. If the cause is ultimately you can somehow show that there was nothing at the beginning of the universe, then whatever you see now is also must be nothing. So it cannot be that something has come out of nothing. Um, so experience. Please give us an experience. Where do you find that you are nothing? sarva In deep sleep, there is nothing. That's my argument. There is no experience of the world, there's no experience of the body, there's no experience of the self. But uh, why don't you look at our experience? After waking up, we say that we experience deep sleep. Haven't you heard Vedantins keep on ad nauseum saying, uh, you know, I slept happily and all of this. He says, just playing with words. His, uh, uh, his His explanation is different. He says, Here is an experience for you to think about. When you wake up from deep sleep, You feel, I was not there, now I am. And this shows that your original nature is non existence But what about our arguments? That deep sleep was uh, experienced by some consciousness. Uh, Otherwise, how can you even speak about deep sleep? No, you're just inferring it, that could be. I mean, we don't agree, but it's a pretty subtle point and pretty interesting, intelligent point of view. It's you're just playing with words. The emptiness philosophers say, you're just playing with words. Actually, there was nothing. Why don't you admit it? There was nothing in deep sleep. There's nothing in coma. The self just disappears. It just comes out of uh, existence. It's not even in existence. It's an illusion at the core of which there's an emptiness. So, emptiness is the self. vadati. So, this, their view is the self is emptiness. It's not a fair characterization of the um, emptiness people. And that's what I will talk about next time. I'll talk about the first of these philosophers, Nagarjuna, who was actually um, a Brahmin um, from Andhra Pradesh, one of India's most brilliant philosophers, most brilliant philosophers, extraordinary. He was called the second, he's called the second Buddha. In Buddhist philosophy, he's called the second Buddha. After Gautama Buddha, he lived about 500 years after Buddha, about 2000 years uh, before our time, In the first century, CE, so um, he became Buddhist, and uh, he is at the source of all Mahayana philosophy. He is the first and the major Mahayana philosopher. Whole of Tibetan Buddhism, and the philosophy of Tibetan Buddhism is traced back to the work of Nagarjuna. Um, he set this new school of Buddhism, the Mahayana school, uh, on a firm philosophical basis. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, directly what I saw, I did a full course on, on Nagarjuna uh, at uh, Harvard. But the interesting thing is, I was introduced to Nagarjuna about 20 years ago when I was a novice in Belurmat. So we had, I, I used to explore the library thoroughly. And uh, I came across two books. Nagarjuna's major work is Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the verses on the middle way, Mula Madhyamaka Karika. And another book is Vigraha Vyavartini, Refutation of Other Doctrines. And uh, Suhril Lekha, um, you know, advice from a well-wisher. And uh, Ratnavali, a collection of gems. So these are the well-known books of Nagarjuna, especially the Mulamadhyamakakarika and the Vigraha Vyavartini. And both of these came to my hand uh, in, with English translations when I was a novice. I never knew that 20 years later, I would be doing full courses on these books in Harvard University. <laughs> it was unthinkable, but I just was fascinated. So I studied them. In fact, I did my dissertation in the in our monastery. We had to do a dissertation, so I did my dissertation on Nagarjuna's work. Uh, in so that was a long time ago, a very immature dissertation at that time. But anyway, I was very fascinated. So Nagarjuna talks about shunyata, the idea of emptiness. Um, what it is. And um, what are the consequences of that? I mean, today Nagarjuna is a big name. Uh, you know, in um, India it was not all that important for some time. His commentator was Chandrakirti, who lived a couple of hundred years after Nagarjuna, and he wrote a commentary on Nagarjuna's Mula Madhyamaka Karika called Prasannapada, um, and also something called the Madhyamaka Avatara, introduction to the Madhyamaka philosophy. So what did Nagarjuna do? What, are, what do these books say? What were his arguments? What is the actual meaning of um, Shunyata, emptiness? In fact, if you say one thing, that will be the theme of next week's talk will be what is this emptiness? And why is it unfair to say that uh, this, they say the self is nothing? It's not really true. Emptiness uh, is nothing, is not an entirely fair characterization. Um, though many, many of the Hindu philosophers, especially Shankaracharya, Vedanta philosophers, they simply dismiss the emptiness people as being totally empty. <laughs> that they are, not, they are saying that there's nothing that exists. They are nihilists. They just say nothing exists. It's not as simple as that. Um, so why did this, I'll just make one remark and stop. Why did this school at all originate? The school of the name of the school is Madhyamaka Shunyavada. Shunyavada means those who propound emptiness. Madhyamaka means middle, the middle path. Now, why did this school originate at all? This school comes from the silence of the Buddha. The Buddha was asked some important philosophical questions about the Atman, about existence after death, after what happens to the Buddha after Nirvana, after the Buddha will give up the body, does the Buddha exist or not? In, in all of these questions, Buddha said nothing. So, does the Atman exist or self exist? His answer was, did I say it exists? So it doesn't exist. Did I say it does not exist? Uh, then the student asks the Buddha, but, but what are you saying then? The other teachers some of them they say it exists some of them they say that it does not exist and so on what do you teach what does you the tathagata? what does the tathagata teach the buddha said what would you say to a person who you know if he is in accident hit by an arrow and you run to help him and the man says wait a minute before you help him what is the wood from which this arrow is made or who is the uh, archer who shot the arrow and uh, what, which country does he come from? Before you answer these questions, I will not allow any treatment. What would you say to such a person? And, uh, the disciple said, I would say he's a, f- he's a fool. He will die before he gets... Uh, what is the use of these questions? What is the use of these answers also? He needs treatment. And uh, the Buddha said, precisely. The Tathagata teaches there is suffering. There is a reason for this suffering. And there is an end to suffering. And there is a way to end suffering, the Four Noble Truths. Well, that's fine. So this is a well-known story. Now, what Nagarjuna takes away from it is why did the Buddha keep silent? Why? One, the usual answer we get is uh, that because it's not useful to know the answers to these questions. But these are very important questions. Fundamental questions. Why should we at all undertake a spiritual query if there is nothing to be searched for? What is there a God? Is there an Atman? Is there freedom? How? What is? We need a worldview. Another theory is that um, the Buddha did not know the answers. That's why he kept quiet. <laughs> no, that's not tenable. Because the Buddha, we know, we know that he was very learned in every uh, philosophy which was being taught at that time in ancient India. We know he had read, he had studied uh, Sankhya and yoga also, the proto-Sankhya and yoga of those times, under well-known masters. So he knew, he was very well-versed. You can't say that he didn't know. Anyway, finally Nagarjuna comes to the conclusion that silence is the correct answer. Silence is the answer. Not because answer should not be given to these questions, not because the Buddha did not know, it is because silence is the correct answer no answer that you give, no philosophy that you propound will be correct. Because the truth cannot be captured in language. So Nagarjuna says, Shunyata Sarvadrishti Naam, emptiness of all philosophies. He had a huge fight with the Nyaya school. That little book, Vigraha Vyavartini, um, which I read 20 years ago as a novice. And we it was prescribed for reading Last year at Harvard, so I found it quite nice to go through that old book again. And uh, so there, it's the fight between Nagarjuna and the nayaikas The Nyaya school, Nyaya school is logicians, you know. So uh, they they immediately attack Nagarjuna. So they're very subtle in their logic. So you're saying that all philosophies are empty. Shunya,ta Sarvadrishti, Nandrishti means point of view all points of view are void or empty. Then uh, your point of view is also empty. What you are saying, that everything is empty, that's also empty. Nagarjuna replies, yes, if I had a point of view, that would be empty, but I don't have a point of view. (laughs) If I say something, you could prove it to be false. I'm not saying anything. I'm just waiting for you to say something and I'll prove that to be false. So it's a kind of uh, philosophical judo uh, jujitsu which is doing he is not attacking but any position you take up he will prove that it is false it's self-contradictory on the on the merits of that position only he will take up that position and show that it is self-contradictory and he does that throughout how he does that we'll see next time just a few glimpses of that and then we'll see what has been said here is either an oversimplification or just unfair the way it has been characterized and then we will go ahead. All right. Quick. Let's see the points of view. Rick says, "If no consciousness, how do they explain such a func- person functions? When when the person is functioning, um, then there's a body and a mind and the world and consciousness arises. That you're talking about the Nyaya school. But you're saying that you might ask, then how does the fu- person function after enlightenment?" It doesn't, because then enlightenment would require no body. I mean, so the, their enlightenment would be, the final enlightenment would be after death. Then uh, Krishnamurti says, nyaya Vaisheshika sounds like they could achieve freedom by sleeping forever. <laughs> yeah, but they can't, you can't sleep forever, because sleep is, is a bija, a seed state. A seed will always germinate. So it is always, a, deep sleep is a seed state, and it is a seed of all trouble then shramani says nyaya vaisheshika freedom no body mind body awareness wonder how it relate, relates to nirvikalpaka stages of yoga yeah it's very interesting it is not um, a dumb thing to say what the nyaya vaisheshikas are saying it is actually if you look at it the, the way they present it if you go into some depth it's not so far from what advaita vedanta says also or yoga philosophy says also one thing is lacking positive bliss joy or happiness you know bliss of freedom like you might get the bliss of staying with god in heaven after in a dualistic philosophy so what do the nayakas say that say about that What great nyaya philosopher gangesha has harsh words for that he says the search for bliss is shows deep worldliness it is an it's a, an absence of vairagya dispassion you are grasped, the very search that I want to be very happy, perfectly happy, which many dualistic philosophers say, many Vedantins say and all of that. Mayayikas are very dry logicians. They say, this shows, um, uh, you know, inconsistency in your spiritual search. You want freedom from pain. You want freedom from pain and happiness. Won't work. <laughs> so that's their perspective. Girish says... What exactly is new Advaita and how it is different from direct path, new Advaita? Big question. We'll see uh, later. Kiran says, other than Buddhism, all philosophies mentioned so far sound atheist, as they don't mention God or higher self. Buddhism is atheistic. Kiran? So you're saying other than Buddhism? No, but it's Buddhism which is atheistic. Mm-hmm. The Nyaya school, so we we have come across the Charvakas. Charvakas are atheistic, no doubt about it. They don't accept any higher self or God. Buddhists are also atheistic, or at least agnostic. They don't accept uh, a God. In fact, the school which we just mentioned, the uh, Nyaya Vaisheshika school, they are the first ones to propound the existence of God. The the Nyaya school says that there is is self and higher self, Jivatma, Paramatma. Self is of two kinds, Jivatma and Paramatma. Jivatma is us, and there's a higher self called God. A very dualistic school. And their ideas have been taken up by later dualistic devotional schools. Rick has given a link to Kumari Labhatta. And uh, Mandana Mishra. If you read those things, you will see that how complicated it actually is. Whether Mandana Mishra actually was Sureshwara of the story, you know, who becomes Shankaracharya's disciple, or was there a separate Mandana Mishra who was an Advaita teacher and a separate Sureshwara? And so, all this modern scholarship. Nidjar is asking why is Shunyavada covered separate from Buddhism? It's not covered separate from Buddhism. He says, the another kind of Buddhist, is the Shunyavada. Rick says would it be fair to say that all these people espousing different philosophies were not fully enlightened like the blind men having only partial perspectives of the elephant would fully enlightened people all ascribe to the same philosophical view no they wouldn't Um, if you have touched the elephant in some way um, then you have touched reality the only mistake that the blind men made made was they thought that what they had touched was the whole view of reality notice elephant is like a pillar, elephant is like a rope, elephant is like a, like a fan, elephant is like a, like a, 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 you know, like a hose pipe or something, They are touching different parts of the elephant and thinking that is the entire elephant. That's what in fact, Nagarjuna targets, the emptiness of all points of view, he takes up each point of view, and he exposes it's um, how self contradictory it can be. But notice they have also touched the reality. So An enlightened person would be one who touches the reality, who realizes God in some way or the other and leaves it open, knows that the reality which he has realized is also infinite and others can realize in different ways, what Sri Ramakrishna said. Um, One more Shiva Priya, blankness in deep sleep cannot be self if self is Brahma. Yes. Um, that's our point of view. <laughs> so we are looking at different points of view about the self. Right. Were these, all these people, where they enlightened, notice that what we, we are doing here in this book is a very oversimplified outline of these views. Nyaya has over 2,000 years of vast literature. There are more Nyaya books then there are uh, vedanta books for example for example this this book is an introduction to vedanta for the last 600 years um, traditional vedanta uh, students they start with this book and this book has three important commentaries three commentaries sanskrit commentaries on this book the vedanta sara um, so and students study those commentaries to understand this book better the equivalent book in nyaya vaisheshika would be a book called uh, the Tarkasangra, which we studied uh, as novices. That introduces you, just like this introduces you to Advaita Vedanta, Tarkasangra introduces you to Nyaya and Vaisheshika together. Nyaya and Vaisheshika together. Now, notice the Tarkasangra, which is an introductory book for Nyaya and Vaisheshika, has about 80 commentaries. Age zero. This has three. Advaita Vedanta introduction has three commentaries. Nyaya Vaisheshika introduction has 80 commentaries, which shows you the sheer scale of Nyaya Vaisheshika scholarship. So these are vast schools. The school which we just now talked about, Nagarjuna's Shunyavada Madhyamaka, has about um, six, seven hundred years of Indian scholarship on it after Nagarjuna. And then it really took off when it went to Tibet. There's a thousand years of Tibetan commentarial tradition. I have one whole shelf of translations of Nagarjuna's one work, uh, Mula Madhyamaka Karika. Translations and commentaries uh, written by Tibetan masters over the last seven, 800 years. Those have been translated into English. So those books are there. Our professor Garfield who taught us um, Indo-Tibetan Madhyamaka, that was the name of the course indo tibetan Madhyamaka, and he's crazy about indo tibetan Madhyamaka, Nagarjuna's philosophy. I remember the first day he, in the class, he said, look, if you can do Madhyamaka philosophy, why would you do anything else in the world? This is so fascinating. You just do this thing only. And uh, uh, he, he, some professors made it a rule that you have to buy the books. which is is difficult for many students because it's expensive. Those books are very expensive. Um, So he said, there is good news and bad news about the books. The bad news is that you have to buy them all. So we did. And he said, the good news is that they are very pretty. I know you will never read these books again in your life, but they look pretty on your shelf. And he was right. They look very pretty on my shelf. (laughs) I'll show it to you someday, remind me next time. so much work has been done by great Tibetan masters in the last seven, eight hundred years. Very subtle discussion uh, on Nagarjuna's work. So, my point here is um, this may seem like oversimplifications. You know, you might get the feeling like, are these people really enlightened? Why are they saying such silly things like body is the self, or uh, ignorance is the self, or intellect is the self? But no, uh, these are this is just the tip of the iceberg. Each one is a very well thought out. Very consistently developed, well argued, well defended citadel, uh, philosophical citadel, which has stood 1,000 years, 1,500 years, uh, 1,800 years, uh, with hundreds of scholars, huge histories of debate, um, infighting, uh, external attacks, uh, refutations, counter refutations, dialectical works. So they're all very well developed uh, philosophies. Yeah. All right. Let's stop here. Next time, emptiness and the rescue from emptiness. (laughs) Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu